Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. Glad you're able to make it on this little cold and wet day, but at least nice and warm in here. So super thankful for Pastor Scott and his excellent work in Joshua, taking us through that so far. But, uh, you know, there's always plenty of things going around, and we're going to let him rest his voice today. So we'll be taking a slight detour from that passage today. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, looking at verses 19 to 31. Luke 16, verses 19 to 31 will be our text today. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and one of our ushers will be happy to give you one of those. But uh, as you're turning there, just like you to think for a moment about the way the word hell is thrown around these days. People describe events in words like this, all hell broke loose. In the midst of pain and tragedy, people remark that they went through hell. It's used to describe things that are difficult. It's a hell of a climb. It's used in amazement or bewilderment. What are you doing? We could talk about figures of speech all day long that people use, like you don't have a snowball's chance in hell, or he raises hell. Figures like that are, are just used all over the place, right? Dante's Inferno, written in the Middle Ages, really has been an influential uh, on us, our understanding of hell. So Dante's influenced John Milton, writer of Paradise Lost. So I'm not sure that we actually have a, quite a biblical understanding of hell. Um, the same could be perhaps true with heaven as well. Sadly, I think most people have the wrong idea of hell. They picture the far side version where people are stuck in a roaring fire with Satan as the jail warden poking at them while they're roasting hot dogs or uh, stuck doing the things that they hate worst in life, whether that's vacuuming or being next to an obnoxious neighbor or uh, cleaning or doing wash or whatever that is. That's, that's kind of their version of hell. Even in the normal version of hell, it's simply just a, a, a heaven for sinners, this demonic colony where the rebelled and tortured uh, gained, gained their independence from God. And maybe on the other hand, hell is a torture chamber where people are roasted forever for their mistakes or their errors. Like John Lennon's song, Imagine There Is No Heaven, captures the reality of most people. He says, imagine there's no heaven it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Even popular songs, or maybe once popular songs, such as Highway to Hell, also communicate this message. Live an easy, love and free, season ticket on a one-way ride. Asking nothing, leave me be, taking everything in my stride. Don't need no reason, don't need no rhyme, ain't nothing I'd rather do. Going down, party time, all my friends are going to be there too. Yeah, I'm on the highway to hell. No wonder the doctrine of hell has fallen on such hard times. So this far side version of hell is not the biblical one. Hell is not some torture chamber. Hell is a place of justice where sinners are punished for their disobedience against God. So I want to emphasize at the onset of today's message that the purpose of preaching about hell is never to gloat over sinners who get their just reward. Neither is it to make people shake in their boots and take out fire insurance. No, the purpose of preaching on hell is to call sinners to repentance, to awaken us from our apathy, and to point people to the road of escape, Jesus Christ. So let's go to our text now in Luke 16. And if you have that, please stand for the reading of God's word. Starting from verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, 
and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is here, comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You may be seated. So let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we even look and talk about such a difficult topic today on hell, I pray that it is an awakening for us, a reminder of the reality that all of us have a limited lifespan, that none of us know the time and the hour in which we will be taken from this world, in which we will stand before the maker of this world, our judge. And Lord, so our, our hope and our aim is that every single person here and in, in our contact with and around the world can know Jesus Christ and come to saving faith in him. Lord, we confess that many times we're very apathetic about this. We get so caught up in the busyness of life and the mundane and the things going on that we just don't care or we could become indifferent to it. We're afraid of what people may think about us, so we don't talk to them about Jesus or hell. So Lord, change us. Remind us that this cannot be the case, that we have been given the message of salvation, the good news, the gospel. And so I pray you will awaken within our hearts a zeal and a passion and an urgency to be about sharing this. In your name we pray, amen. So the main point that we're going to be seeing today is that we want to look to Jesus and not take our eyes off him. It's looking to Jesus, not taking our eyes off him. So this is not a, a message on getting you to shake in your boots about something. This is a message about let's focus on the Lord and not take our eyes off of him. What we're going to see today is that hell is real and it's certainly no joking matter. Even though the story that Jesus tells here is a parable, nevertheless, it still doesn't lessen the reality that God judges unrepentant sinners. Now, we could easily miss the point that, this, that Jesus is making here today. As you read through this, at first glance, it can almost seem like riches are bad, poorness is good, therefore be poor, that's better, that's more holy. But that is not the point that Jesus is making uh, Abraham, for example, you find him in this account in heaven. What we know from scripture is that Abraham was a rich man. There are other examples of rich people. So the problem is not the richness. That's, that's not what made this man go to hell. And that's not the point that Jesus is saying. Uh, rather, it's 
His unbelief in God, at least the true God of the Bible, and obedience to his word that has resulted in this. So I'm focusing less on the details of this story today and more on the topic of hell, even though introducing it through this story. Uh, Some of you may be wondering, you know, I've been referring to it as a parable. Um, That can be uh, maybe a little strange because the man is named. But, you know, Lazarus, he has a name in here. But there's no rule in telling a story that you can't give the characters names. So this uh, typically has been understood as a parable, a story Jesus is telling to illustrate a point. So many preachers and Christians talk about hell being hell because of the eternal separation from God. But really, that's not entirely true, and that's not what makes it hell. See, the danger of hell is not an eternal separation from God. I'll say that again. The danger of hell is not the eternal separation from God. The danger, actually, is the eternal presence of God. See, God is present in hell to punish sinners eternally. Just consider Revelation 14, 9 to 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Or in Matthew twenty-five forty-one, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So this punishment of the wicked uh, it does include this separation, even though God is there eternally to punish them. But we do notice one thing, that Christ banishes sinners from his presence. But at the same time, there's a sense in which God is present to the sinner in his or her punishment. So this would be a wrathful presence, not a loving presence, but a, but a wrathful presence uh, depicted as we read in there, there in Revelation 4.10, tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the angels and of the Lamb. So that's not a contradiction to two sides of the, to two sides. It, it, it's, it's not a contradiction to say that there's a separation that occurs between God and sinners, but at the same time, God is eternally present. It's just two sides of the same coin. So in hell, God is totally absent in terms of his presence to bless, but he's present to impact suffering and pain to the sinner. So hell would also include this idea of banishment from God. So banishment goes far beyond the idea of mere separation. If you're just separated from something, that's not nearly as bad as banishment. So banishment is the active judgment of God against the person so that they are cut off from Christ and the kingdom of God, that the sinner is completely given over to their sin and themselves and they are not known by God. Now, people often unfortunately pit Jesus against Paul. They say, well, Paul, you know, he's the one that's always talking so hardly about these kind of things right here. But we need a Jesus who's loving, who would never say anything like this, right? Or wait a minute. Now, while Paul, well, it's true that Paul never uses the Greek word translated as hell, Jesus actually does 12 times. 
Paul, of course, speaks about hell. He, he talks about the concept of it while not using the actual word. But Jesus, more than anyone, talks about hell. So, what can we say about hell? Or what do we need to know about hell? Well, first, we need to know that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. 2 Peter 3, verses 1 to 10, uh, really unpack that. And there Peter says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by the way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world then existed, was deluged with water, and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that one day with the Lord is as, as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some would count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works in them will be exposed. So what we don't want to do is mistake God's patience, his divine patience, for a failure of God to act. Although it can seem as if those who are disobeying God will get away with it, that's actually not the case. There will be a judgment, and God will right all wrongs. So judgment is coming. Secondly, we don't want to overlook or miss the fact that hell is a literal place. Now, in the Bible, there's a number of words used to describe hell. You may be familiar with several of these. So shale, some of your translations have that. Especially in the Old Testament, you'll see that word, shale. And that's a Hebrew word. It can be used uh, in a variety of passages to describe the fate of the dead, or at least the fate of some of the dead. So it's true that shale can refer to the grave. I mean, in some context, it can mean that, just the grave. It can also be the place of disembodied punishment for the wicked. So what I mean by that, what I mean by disembodied is that when you die, at least at this moment, your body and your spirit are separated. Your spirit then would go to one of two places, either Sheol, or as we'll see in a little bit, Hades, or to heaven, to be with the Lord. Now in the future, your body and soul will be reunited, you will have a glorified body, and you will be placed in that permanent place. But for the moment, we talk about it as a place of disembodied punishment, or for the righteous, uh, still disembodied, but with the Lord. So one place that would bring this out would be Psalm 49, verses 13 to 14. So there the writer says, Man in his pomps will not remain. He is like the beast that perishes. This is the path for those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for shale. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in shale with no place to dwell. 
So while scripture threatens Sheol against the wicked, it does not do this toward the righteous. So this would mean that, that this word here can't refer to merely the afterlife or to the underworld in general, but must be a place of punishment reserved for the wicked alone. Another word that the Bible uses to describe this temporary place for the unrighteous, for the wicked, is Hades. So in the Old Testament, Sheol, and the New Testament, Hades. Now it's true that in the Greek copy of the Old Testament, we call that the Septuagint, you'll see uh, Hades um, translated there too. And it carries the, the same two meanings in the New Testament that Sheol does in the Old Testament. It can either refer to just simply the grave or again, a, a place of disembodied punishment. Now, some people wrongly believe, uh, especially as they read this, this story that we read today, that Hades or Sheol is divided into two compartments with paradise or Abraham's bosom being one of those and then a separate section uh, for the unrighteous. But that's not what this parable is teaching here. And that's where a lot of people get that idea um, from this text here. You, you look at that and, you, and it almost sounds like there's two compartments there with Abraham in one and then this rich man in the other. Uh, but again, this is a parable that Jesus is telling. So we, don't, we have to be careful not to press the details of that too far. Revelation 20 verses 13 and 14, again, emphasize that there's this temporary condition, temporary dwelling place for the wicked. Uh, and there John says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Now get this. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So now we have another word here, the lake of fire. That's equi equivalent to Gehenna. And it's referring to this final state of punishment for the wicked that occurs after the resurrection of our bodies. So Gehenna and the lake of fire. Uh, Gehenna appears 12 times in the New Testament, 11 times in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and one time in James. And in the Gospels, it's Jesus who is always the one talking about it. So J Jesus makes it very clear that Gehenna is a place of embodied punishment for wicked human beings. Now, when I say again embodied, I mean body and spirit are reunited with each other. It's the final place for the wicked. You see this in passages such as Matthew 9, 29 to 30, or Matthew 10, 28, or uh, Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9. And so Gehenna, or the lake of fire, is the final place of punishment for the wicked. It occurs after the resurrection that takes place at the last judgment. So it's equivalent to this lake of fire that's mentioned in Revelation 19 and 20. Now notice, and especially in Revelation 20, where we read there in verses 12 to 14, that the human inhabitants of Hades, 
who are now resurrected, who now have new bodies, are cast into the lake of fire to receive their ultimate punishment. With them, Satan and the demons also find their eternal punishment there, without bodies, of course. Given that they are angels, they don't have, you know, physical bodies. So we we think about this lake of fire. um, That's the, the final dwelling place there. So hell is a literal place. Third, hell is prepared for the angels and the devil and all those who follow him. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So this was God's original design in terms of what he designed it for, uh, for the devil and his angels, and then consequently all of those who would follow the devil and his followers. Fourth, hell is a place of torment and punishment. Now, that may go without saying, but we need to think about that a a little bit more in there. Um, So Jesus, again, in Matthew 25, if you remember that, he's saying, Depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And then later in verse 46, he says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So punishment must be felt for it in order to be punishment. There's not going to be any annihilation. So one of the things, one of the challenges that Christians have faced maybe in more recent times is that some people in order to try to dismiss or or to minimize this doctrine of hell have resorted to annihilism. Well, in hell, they're just going to be annihilated. They'll just cease to exist. And that's how we can maintain the doctrine of hell while at the same time holding to the doctrine of God's love. But that's not the way it works. So in hell, those there will experience intense and excruciating pain. This pain will be physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. This torment would include sorrow, regret, remorse, and a pain that we cannot imagine. It's described in the Bible as a weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 8, 12. It's a coming misery, an eating flesh with fire. It's a day of slaughter, James 5, verses 1 to 5. So this pain is worse than any type of human suffering. The level matches the wickedness of the person's behavior, according to Romans 2, 5 through 8. So those in this torment will feel the full force of God's wrath, but he does not allow them to die or to have any rest from that. Hell is also a place of eternal fire, back to Revelation 20.10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into this lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Later on in Revelation 14.10 and 11, but he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or tonight. So this idea of torment means to, to vex with grievous pain, either a body or mind. Um, it means to, to torture. It, it can apply, again, to either physical or mental pain or distress. So, so hell is a place of that. But fifth, the punishment and the torment in hell is just. It is just. 
So many people think that it is unjust for God to punish people in hell. But the Bible speaks very differently of that. This punishment is both just and it's deserved. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 5 to 6. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Or in Romans 3, 11 to 19, where Paul answers the question of, is anybody really a good person? Does anybody really deserve the goodness of God? He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that, uh, and then later in Romans chapter 3, 19 and 20, Paul says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So every single person deserves hell. Sixth, hell is worse than we think. Hell is worse than we think. Part of the challenge of understanding hell is the fires of hell. Are these fires literal or are they metaphorical? And if the fire is literal, how does it torment spirits? Well, Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, now, do not begin telling me that it is metaphorical fire. Who cares for that? If a man were to threaten to give me a metaphorical blow on the head, I should care very little about it. He would be welcome to give me as many as he pleased. And what say to the wicked? We do not care about metaphorical fires. But they are real, sir. Yes, as real as yourself. There is a real fire in hell. As truly as you have a real body... A fire exactly like that which we have on earth in everything except this, that it will not consume, though it will torture you. You have seen the asbestos lying in the fire red hot, but when you take it out, it is unconsumed. So, we, so your body will be prepared by God in such a way that it will burn forever without being consumed. It will lie, not as you consider, in metaphorical fire, but in actual flame. At the end of the day... The reality of hell is far worse than the images we think. The presence of God only to punish is, again, what makes hell, hell. However the fires are, they are the outpouring of God's wrath that will torment uh, sinners emotionally, physically, spiritually, uh, in every, every area. So the reality is far worse than any capacity we have to think about it. Just as with heaven, the blessings of that are far greater than anything, any capacity we have to imagine those. Seventh, hell is eternal. Now, we've mentioned a number of passages, so again, this is probably not new to you, but, but hell is eternal, meaning there's no end to it. Daniel 12, 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Or Isaiah 66, 24. 
And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Mark 9, 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. One more. Matthew 21, 45 to uh, 46. Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eighth, no one dies in hell. No one dies in hell. Revelation 9, 6. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. You don't go out of existence. You do not die. You continue there eternally. Ninth, it's better to be maimed or to be blind than to go to hell for your sin. It's better for you to have your arm cut off or for your eyes to be lost than it is for you to go to hell for your sin. Matthew 5, 29 to 30, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. So if you're caught, if you're trapped in some kind of ongoing, unrepentant sin, it is better for you to lose whatever it is than it is for you to continue in that and go to hell. Tenth, hell continues to harden sinners. There are no repentant people in hell. There's no one in hell who's, who's now begging God, oh, I was so wrong, I want to change, I get it, I, I'm, I'm a different person now. Hell hardens people. Revelation 16, 8 to 11. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him the glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongue in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So no one repents in hell. Their hatred of God does not end. Eleventh, hell fits the crime. So one of the main objections against hell is that the punishment does not fit the crime. How could God send people to hell, a punishment that lasts for eternity with torment for crimes that have only lasted a few years? Anyone heard that before? Pretty, pretty common objection to, to hell. So in other words, do criminals co- with, with crimes committed in time deserve eternal punishment? Well, the answer is yes for several reasons. First, the length of, the length of a crime has nothing to do with, with its severity. So a crime can only take a few seconds to happen, but or even a few minutes, but, but that can be far worse than a crime that takes years to unfold. So the, so the length in which the crime was committed has nothing to do with the severity of that crime. Second, and more importantly, it's who the crime was committed against that makes the difference. The more worthy and important the one that was offended, 
the more strict is the punishment of a crime. And so a crime, which is sin, is against God, who is the worthiest and the holiest of all. And then God is just. Genesis 18.25, shall not the God of Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God is just. So he he is just in sending people to hell. But it still raises a question. How can a loving God send people to hell? I mean, what do we do with the love of God? How does that fit in? Well, it's true that God is love, right? Absolutely true. We would never deny that. God is love, as we sang about today. And that's a a wonderful thought. And it's a, a critical truth for us as believers. But God's love is not his only attribute. God's love is not greater than any of his other attributes. If we took away one attribute of God, he would no longer be God. So no attribute is superior. If we elevate love above all of his other attributes, we would distort God. So God is love. God is holy. Sin demands a response. And hell actually reminds us of God's love. God did something so that we would not have to go. In fact, it would be, I think you can recognize the reality of it, it would be very unloving if someone committed a, an atrocious crime and then um, they were, it was simply just said, oh well, that's okay, we're just gonna let them go. You know, what about everyone affected by that, right? So this just dismissal of that would, would uh, not reflect justice very well. But that's not, that's not what God is like. He is perfectly just. But the answer to hell is Jesus. So the gospel is not the message of hell, right? The gospel is the message of salvation. We do not delight in the fate of the unsaved. Rather, we labor to proclaim how they can be saved. And what we want them to know is that God, out of his boundless love for us, sent his only son to deliver us, John 3.16. And in saving us, he delivers us from the divine wrath that we would otherwise have had to bear ourselves. Think about 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, how does Christ's work, how does Christ's death deliver us from the wrath to come? Very simply, Jesus averts God's wrath by bearing that wrath in our place, and by becoming our substitute. As we approach this Christmas season, some of the passages you're going to be familiar with are some such as Isaiah 53, uh, especially verses 4 through 6 or 10 or 11. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this turning away of wrath is what the Bible means by the word propitiation. I know, I know, that's like a 50-cent word, maybe a $5 word. But it means the satisfaction of God's wrath. So 1 John 2, 2, Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins. And this demonstrated God's great love for us because even when we, when we had no love for God, God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
the satisfaction, the wrath-turning satisfaction for our sins. The same propitiation demonstrates God's justice as well because God expressed the fullness of his wrath against sin by punishing Jesus Christ in our place. Romans 3, 25 to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So let's summarize this. Why is it important that we talk about hell? Well, first, we're reminded that we have a mission. And that mission is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. As 2 Corinthians 5, 20, and 21 state, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're also reminded that life will not continue to go on as it is. Every day, people are dying. People are being born and dying. And there's going to come a time when one day, every single one of us and every single one of your neighbors and every single one of your coworkers and every single one of your friends or your family are going to stand before a perfectly holy God. Do we have a care or an urgency for their souls? So we can be also reminded of what we have to be thankful for. And thinking, speaking or thinking of hell reminds us of what we have to be thankful for. So we're reminded that even though we deserve God's justice and wrath expressed eternally in hell, that God in his love through Jesus Christ delivered us. As Galatians 1.4 says, Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we're reminded of the love that Jesus has for us to give up his life, to bear God's wrath in our place so that we didn't have to. Hell also points us to the justice and the glory of God. So questions like, why don't we need to take matters into our own hands when we're wronged? Why can't I strike that person back? Why can't I repay them with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and so on? Well, because those sins are either paid for by Jesus on the cross or they will be paid for that person in hell. Why can we trust God when it seems like the ungodly are just having their own way and are so blessed? Well, because one day God will repay them with justice. And as hard as it may seem, hell points us to the glory of God. God will triumph over his foes. God will vanquish them forever. God will live with his people in perfect relationship. How do we know this? Well, in part, because of hell. Now, I don't want you to leave today, I really do not want you to leave today with an arrogance or a smugness in looking down on people. Oh, praise the Lord, I'm not like that. I hope so-and-so heard that. You hear that? Make sure you pay attention. That, that is not what the doctrine of hell is supposed to do. No, I, I pray that you leave with a sense of urgency. 
a zeal, a passion, a desire to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone you know, I want you to leave with thankfulness. Not thankfulness that somehow you got yourself out of hell, but thankfulness to God that he saved such a hell-bound sinner as yourself. And I want you to leave with a new focus, a new focus on Jesus who delivered us from our sin and the present evil age. Let's go to the Lord and pray for that now. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, it has been a challenging topic that we have looked at today. Certainly not one that probably we all come to church wanting to hear about. Certainly not one that we want to talk about lightly or casually. Lord, as we think about this, I pray that it does give us an urgency. An urgency to, to just remember and reflect that all around us, people are, are headed somewhere. And you have put them in their paths to share the good news with them. So Lord, I pray today especially that if there's anyone here who does not know the true God of the Bible, who has not truly placed their, placed their faith and trust in Jesus alone for their salvation, maybe someone today who has been, maybe they did profess faith at a very young age, but they've been living like the devil ever since. Lord, I pray that today could be a reflection time for them to consider I don't know what happened back then, Lord, but I know right now I need to place my faith and trust in you alone for my salvation. And by your grace, follow you. So Lord, I pray for your word to go forth, to give hope, to give encouragement, and to give us those reminders that we need. It's in your name we pray. Amen.